Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Hollywood Sources Podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change, and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process. SSE, as Scotland's clean energy champion, can't wait to get started. As soon as the project gets the green light from government. Learn more at berwickbank.com. The podcast starts now. I think if you understand uh, statutory public inquiries, you would know that even if I wasn't prepared to give that assurance, which for the avoidance of doubt I am, uh, then I wouldn't have the ability. This will be a judge-led statutory uh, public inquiry. We can see um, that under the box Nicola Sturgeon, it says that messages were not retained they were deleted in routine tidying up of inboxes or changes of phones, unable to retrieve messages. So that, what that tends to suggest is that at the time a request was made, Nicola Sturgeon, the former First Minister of Scotland, had retained no messages whatsoever in connection with her management of the pandemic. Is that correct? That's what that indicates to me. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday, the 24th of January. I'm Callum MacDonald. And also on the podcast, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Greetings, greetings all. Uh, lots to come on the podcast today. We are going to talk a lot about the COVID inquiry. As you might imagine, it has been the dominating story of the week since we last spoke on the podcast. Uh, so we'll do that with you in a few minutes' time. And also, we're going to welcome to the podcast today uh, Sandy Begby, 
Uh, more from Sandy to come uh, in the next few minutes as well. But first, we are but days away from our next big live event. This is our energy special in Aberdeen. It's happening next Tuesday evening uh, alongside the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce who are putting on the event and we're going along to talk about energy. Uh, it's days away. Je- Jeff, how are you? F- what are you thinking about? I suppose the kind of current conversation around energy. What are the sorts of things that we might be talking about next week? Given it's a, a political discussion between three parties, I think we're going to have uh, a fair bit about uh, oil and gas and its contribution to energy security. Uh, we're going to have a lot of discussion about the alternatives uh, to oil and gas and how we accelerate them. We all want to see new energies, particularly offshore wind and hydrogen and carbon capture and storage accelerated. How do we accelerate it? And then I think there's a, a, a very important discussion to be had, had is about how we do that. I'm really interested to know the competing visions and ideas from all the politicians as to how we get there as quick as possible. Mm. Um, and I want to really tease out some of those issues uh, in terms of, uh, uh, for our listeners' benefit. Particularly. Yeah. And I'm going to do a little kind of spoiler at this point because uh, next week, our second big live event like this with 300 people, we're doing it slightly differently to when we did the First Minister Hamza Yusuf in the Jeff and Andy are going to be wandering around among the people, getting their questions and putting them to the politicians on stage. Um, Andy, I th- you're, this is your kind of this is your time to do an Ant and Deck impersonation, I think. Yeah, well, you're, you've troubled me because this is the first time we've publicly said we're going to do this. <laughs> we've committed that show. So it means now we can't not do it, despite the grave reservations that I at least have about that particular <laughs> format. However, be now it's going be to happen and it's going to work, of course, as well. Uh, I think it'll be, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a good discussion. I mean, obviously, we, we, you know, we, we talk about energy quite a lot on this podcast and I don't think mm. we should make any apologies for that. Energy has been the backbone of Scotland's economy for the last 50 years and in, it should be the backbone of Scotland's economy for the next 50, 100, 200 years potentially. So there's no reason not to talk uh, quite significantly about it. I think the key thing that I want to try to tease out of it on behalf of the audience who's there, many of whom will be directly involved in energy, but a lot of whom will not necessarily be directly involved uh, in the energy sector, is... Um, What's rhetoric versus reality here? You know, we hear so often that Scotland is world leading in the energy sector and world class at this and world class at that. But we hear that a lot in other sectors as well. And it isn't always true. You know, are we actually exploiting all that we can exploit in energy? Are we the best in the world at any of this stuff? Or are we just telling ourselves we are and are other countries actually doing better? So I think it's time to uh, get real and get honest about where we are. We all know what the opportunity is there. That's clearly in no doubt. But are we actually exploiting it in the best way that we could? I think that is really what I would like to get out of next week. Right, let's continue building up to next week's uh, energy special in Aberdeen. We're joined by Alex Meredith, who is the project director for SSE Berwick Bank. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to speak to you. Now, I say SSE Berwick Bank. Our listeners will be familiar uh, with Berwick Bank, given that you are sponsoring our podcast, you're sponsoring the event next week. But I think it'd be important for you just to outline what SSE Berwick Bank actually is, first of all. 
Well, Berrybank is a an offshore wind project um, that is situated off the coast of um, East Lothian um, to, in the Outer Firth of Forth. Um, but it's it's no ordinary project. It's a, a huge step forward for the offshore wind industry in Scotland and actually globally. It, the scale of the project is 4.1 gigawatts and makes it the largest opportunity in the UK. And it really presents um, a chance for Scotland to finally take that mantle as a world leader in delivering offshore wind, which we've talked about for a long time. But the projects, unfortunately, haven't come through as quickly and as a scale as, as we'd like. This one changes that. This is the, the chance to really put a marker down and say that we in Scotland can deliver the really large scale, globally significant uh, projects and make a huge dent in the decarbonisation ambitions that we, we all need to, to focus on um, and we've committed to in Scotland and UK um, to, to combat climate change. Does it feel like an historic moment? Does it feel like a pivotal moment, given what you've just said? Well, I, I feel that it is. And um, we at SSE, who are developing the project, um, feel that it is. I think these projects, as you may know, take a long time to come through. Um, too long, frankly. Um, but and this this project has been with SSE. It was it, the, the the rights to the project were granted in 2010, 11. Um, so we're talking about a long process, um, and therefore, you know, the, the moment to now go and deliver it is a pivotal moment and a real step change. Um, and the project, the largest project offshore in Scotland at the moment is Sea Green, uh, largest wind project. Uh, that's a gigawatt, but just a bit, a bit more than that. Um, this is this is four times that scale. So really taking a massive leap forward in terms of scale. And, and honestly speaking, that is what is required to really advance this um, process of, of, of trying to combat the worst effects of climate change and really s- stepping up our efforts to decarbonize our electricity system. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge step forward and, you know, these kind of projects really are the, the, the moment that people I think can really see a change. Um, so projects have taken a long time to come through. Now we get a chance to really, um, advance and accelerate, which, you know, all the narrative, uh, from Scottish government, UK government, COP28, you know, the global scene is to say, let's move this process faster because we can see the effects of climate change around us happening right now. Yeah. You, you strike me as a very measured man, Alex, but I'm sensing a bit of frustration at how long it's taken. Well, it's uh, it's part of our world, I'm afraid, that we get used to, um, you know, slow moving processes, uh, consenting processes, you know, governmental approvals. But, you know, I've been I've been in this industry for over a decade and, you know, that's been the narrative. Now, what has changed in the last couple of years is that there's been a real understanding, I think, as we've seen energy security come up the agenda, as we've seen those effects of climate change really happening around us. You know, we see 80 percent of Scots um, are looking for immediate um, action on climate change, see it as an urgent prog- problem. Um, we know that, again, over 80 percent of, of the public in Scotland are looking for, um, would approve of offshore wind farms, even on coastal communities. There's a kind of sense of urgency. We know that Scotland has an opportunity to consent projects more quickly than they can down south. So the process we're in at the moment has a target of nine months turning around consent. Uh, Berwick Bank's been in that process now for just over 12. We could see that that there is, I think the time is now right to, to make that decision and move forward with the project. And going beyond 12 months um, into longer 
uh, timescales, I think, does indicate that we're not really learning or we're not really moving faster than, than historical projects. So, for example, mm. the last project to be consented in Scotland took 12 months. You know, we think we can we can we can we should be able to match that and, and go faster, um, given the circumstances, the urgency and the need, frankly, to get the investment into the supply chain, which, you know, we know a project like this can deliver. Thank you, firstly, Alex, for uh, obviously sponsoring the, the podcast and the event that we're going to have. And, and I think you, you, you touch on such an important point. I think that this uh, development at Berwick Bank is uh, a huge milestone, uh, particularly for Scotland, because when you have something tangible to look at, to draw upon, we can learn best practice. We can get better at ensuring that the supply chain is engaged, that as much of this as possible is manufactured and supported, um, fabricated from Scottish industry. So this is a huge opportunity and it's such an important development for Scotland's uh, renewables ambition. Uh, Alex mentioned one gigawatt in power. That is huge um, in this context. What's even bigger is that the Scotland licensing round, which we talked a lot about in this podcast, uh, uh, give licenses for 28 gigawatts in its entirety. And that's not taking into consideration what's called the INTOG uh, process, which I won't go into this uh, 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 today. But if we get this right and we learn the best lessons from uh, projects like Berwick Bank, Scotland can be a global leader in offshore wind, both floating and fixed. And I think it's such a, a welcome development for us. And, I, and I, I think, you know, as a context for the energy debate on Tuesday, Callum, there couldn't be a better one uh, mm. in terms of discussing this. Yeah, it's really interesting, Alex, because, you know, when we when we put the politicians on stage and when they're questioned by the, the 300 people in the room and uh, by Jeff and Andy and myself, and we're kind of pushing at things, what, what is it that you need to hear from, uh, in this case, representative of the, the Scottish government, energy spokesperson from from Scottish Labour uh, who uh, you know might have more of a say on energy policy in the next couple of years and somebody as well from from the Conservative Party at Westminster what what is it that you need these politicians to be awake to what should we be discussing well i think we we know that there's consensus around moving forward with offshore wind which is great and so we we want to continue that so always always keen to hear people um you know celebrating our sector and the benefits it delivers both in terms of green energy but also economic uh, benefits and jobs um but i think beyond the words and the you know the support we need to make sure that action is taken and delivery is the focus so we know that it's easy to say we'd love a faster process, but what are the actions that we're going to see to deliver that process? You know, what are the changes that we're going to make? What are the, the choices that we're going to take? The difficult choices in some cases that mean that projects move forward because of that imperative around climate change, energy security and jobs. So I think, I think what we'd like to talk more about as we go forward with this discussion is not just the, the, the top line, you know, yes, we want to do this, but the practicalities of how do we make those decisions faster and those processes faster? And also, frankly, how do we support the supply chain to make sure they make those investments in Scotland? So we, if we can get a consent, we can say to the supply chain right now, let's, let's work on a manufacturing facility. We can give you an order. Let's take, let's take that forward. But they will also require Scottish government and UK government to come forward and support those investments because obviously one project will be built and then there's a requirement to understand that they will get more and, and, uh, and those, those facilities will be sustainable. So really important that they are, there are 
commitments to actions, investments in the supply chain, and that we see you know a real long-term view that that industry will be sustainable in in Scotland and the UK. One of the things we're picking up. Um, and I'd be interested to know if you are as well, is there's a lot of potential new investors or existing businesses wishing to diversify into offshore wind that are saying, okay, great, we've got these vast array of pipeline of projects, which is great. But what we don't have is an understanding of how they're going to be prioritized, how they're going to be taken on stream. And so, for example, we're, we're, we're talking just now um, in the Northeast with a potential you know, high value manufacturer on um, uh, moorings and anchorings, because there's going to be thousands of moorings and anchorings needed for floating wind, for example. But what they don't have of certainty of contract. And so one of the things I think that the Scottish government and potentially the UK government as well could do is, you know, perhaps give comfort to these companies to say, hey, we, we could actually cover you um, with a loan guarantee, something like the UK export guarantee, and say, look, we'll cover the first 18 months. We hope that we, you know, we won't need this money, but give them comfort so we, we can get these people building things now. I think the biggest thing I'm hearing from what you're saying is time pace of change. So we need to give those manufacturers comfort that they can come in here, they have an order book, they can create the jobs that we all want to see, and we can build that domestic renewables industry that we all all want to see as well. And I just, is that something you're picking up from the industry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that certainty around um, the process of delivery of projects and the timing is is essential. And that's why Berwick Bank stands as, a, as a, a, a really golden opportunity to make a bold statement as a Scottish government that, that they will consent projects timely and, and give that certainty so we can then move forward with orders and, and progress that process. But as you say, I think it, it goes beyond that into a, a confidence building process, a kind of understanding that Scotland can consent and deliver projects quickly. There are other projects now coming forward for consent. Those need to be progressed equally quickly and positive decisions made. Alongside that, you see the Scottish government will, I think, support manufacturing to come to Scotland. But UK government has a role here, too. We have to make sure that the auction system that is there for support of these projects is is sustainable. So the pricing can can withstand the shocks that we've seen, particularly around the supply chain costs in the last few years. Um, and, and we all have to understand that this is an industry that has to um, cover its own face. You know, it's, it's an inter- industry that has to be able to deliver long term. Um, and so the subsidy regime has to reflect that. The intent is there from the politicians to achieve those things. It's the difficult decisions. It's the commitments that have to be made. Um, some of them politically challenging, but they will deliver a long-term industry as we've seen Scotland deliver in the past. Mm. Jeff, can I ask you, I'm, I'm quite interested um, in the sort of political significance of these sorts of things, because it strikes me that sort of climate change related policy has perhaps not been at the forefront of people's minds over the last number of elections. It's been kind of bubbling, there's been talk of it, it's been a thing, but perhaps not the priority. I wonder if things like the cost of living crisis suddenly bring things like energy, and energy costs especially, to the forefront of people's minds, and whether green, in inverted commas, policies can actually be a really crucial election battleground at this general election and at Scottish elections in the future. I slightly disagree with the the, the premise of your question mm-hmm. um, because I do believe that that climate related policies have been at the forefront of politicians' minds. What I don't think that's been backed up with is actually a, a strategic framework, a plan of action as to how our renewables industry can really benefit from that. Now it's coming; it's slowly but surely it is coming. And again, projects like Berwick Bank give the confidence. 
to the business community that this can be done. And I think the, the way that I would approach it if I were advising politicians is the, the idea that we can um, build a domestic renewables end industry that is the envy the world over is uh, whilst, you know, um, making significant contribution to uh, climate change, decarbonizing industry. It's a win-win situation. Um, the key here that we must get to, and I'm, I'm sorry to labor the point, but is that clear plan of action, uh, prioritization, prior, prioritization of port infrastructure, uh, grid capacity and connections, um, confidence to the supply chain that they can take these big investment decisions and know in full certainty that they can fulfill them and the jobs that they want to create. That's what we need. And we're probably lacking that last bit just now. Good intentions need to be followed up by meaningful actions. Alex, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, we'll see you in Aberdeen next Tuesday. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much. In a few minutes, then, we'll speak to Sandy Begby, who's the chief executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise. Stay with us for that. We're going to talk budget, among other things, and I suppose budget aftermath, crucially, uh, where we're at in this new year. But we must, first of all, talk about the COVID inquiry, which has been taking evidence in Scotland uh, now for the last couple of weeks. And the revelations have been coming thick and fast, I think it's fair to say. Uh, just having a little look at today's write-ups uh, on Wednesday morning, Nicola Sturgeon told a public health expert, don't worry about protocol and gave her a private SNP email address to send her information. Nicola Sturgeon was speaking to Professor Devis Radar, the chairwoman of Global Public Health at the University of Edinburgh. This was via DMs on, on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and basically Sturgeon said, don't worry about protocol, tackling the virus, more important than that, and I'll handle any issues on that front. Of course, this comes after... Uh, there was the revelation that Nicola Sturgeon has deleted all of her WhatsApp messages. Some have been handed to the COVID inquiry by virtue of them being picked up on other devices, uh, but she herself was unable to hand over a device with all of the messages on there. Other lines to emerge. Hamza Youssef was given advice about how to avoid wearing a mask during the pandemic 10 days after the First Minister attacked Boris Johnson for not wearing one. Professor Jason Leach, who at the time, in fact, it was still Scotland's National Clinical Director, denied that he was offering Hamza Youssef a workaround. Hamza Youssef was the health secretary at the time. Uh, there's been a lot of revelations. Jason Leach also said that uh, deleting WhatsApps was a pre-bedtime ritual, which during evidence in the inquiry kind of said, you know, I was overstating that. That was exaggeration. Uh, right. Who wants to go first on this? Uh, Andy, shall I come to you? Because what a colossal mess this truly is. Uh Yes, and I suppose there's a sense of inevitability about it, to be honest, that when these things come out, um, there's going to be a lot of controversy. Uh, I've got a lot of mixed views on all this, to be honest with you. I think the first thing that it is doing, which I always felt would be the case, is I think we will end up, after these inquiries north and south of the border are finished, I think we will end up considering the UK government and the Scottish government to have done basically the same job on COVID. Uh, there has always been this narrative that uh, the Scottish government was uniquely magnificent and the UK government was uniquely awful. Um, and I, I think that has been slipping for a while, to be honest. And I think in the cold light of day, it will seem to will, will be seen to have done largely a four nations job, um, which was probably average to poor on a global scale. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's one thing. Um, 
I'm going to give two what might appear to be contradictory messages, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure they actually are, at least not in my head. Um, I don't mind private discussions. WhatsApps, direct messages, that sort of thing. That's that's the new water cooler chat. I don't mind that, that it takes place. I think that's fine. And I also, not only do I not mind the floating of ideas, I think the floating of ideas was very, very important because it was a situation of unique chaos. Nobody had ever tackled it before. Um, and talking through issues and what to do about them is critically important in terms of decision-making. So I don't mind that any of that took place. But you do need a record of it. Um, not only for inquiries like this, but actually more importantly, you need a record of it so that you can make sure that if this happens again, which it could, that you do it better the next time. So you don't want all the evidence of what happened to uh, never see the light of day. Uh, and that is a, a significant part of the problem here, that even if there were telephone conversations that can't be uh, recorded and can't be screenshotted or whatever. There needs to, to be some sort of double recording so that you can at least understand why decisions were taken and who was involved in them. And that gets me to my final point, at least for now. Um, we've possibly seen nothing yet compared to what might be coming. This is just the first of three parts of this inquiry. There are There's a big section to come on decisions made around education, big section to come on decisions made around the economy. And um, these are significant and very controversial issues. They might not be as emotional as the current issue, which is effectively health and, you know, is dealing with care homes and all that sort of thing. Very important and very emotional issues. But the closure of schools, particularly the second closure of schools, which was done without any medical evidence whatsoever, uh, could be one of the biggest public policy catastrophes this country has ever seen in terms of its lasting impact on education, on mental health, on the economy. Um, mm. And the deliberate obliteration of the economy is also something which we will take a very, very long time to recover from. And if this is the level of exchange um, and if this level of haphazardness was done in relation to these decisions as well then I think we might just be at the start of the problems for the individuals involved uh, Just before we get your take Jeff, I want to play this, this is Elaine Johnston uh, who is somebody who was affected directly by the pandemic. Indeed, she's one of the COVID-bereaved families uh, who has been listening to evidence at the COVID inquiry this week. Um, here's how she responded. All during lockdown, we watched those podium and I kept thinking, thank God I'm not in England. Thank God we've got her here telling the truth. And I'm absolutely ashamed and devastated to hear what she's doing now can't believe it because I really sat there with all my family saying my god thank god we're not in there with those idiots and here we've got one ourselves Jeff what does this mean for Nicola Sturgeon yeah and well firstly um, if anyone need any reminding about why this is so important um, that's a, a real, real experience from a real person there and uh, quite harrowing and, and emotionally charged 
And uh, I can understand her frustration. I do think there is a lot of uh, noise, particularly on social media. Either Nicola Sturgeon is the, the devil incarnate or she's still, you know, I stand with Nicola on the other side. The reality is this isn't a binary issue. It's a very complex issue. It's not black or white. So for my part, my views are are pretty simple as a number of points. Firstly, Nicola Sturgeon did communicate effectively uh, throughout uh, the pandemic, and that was in stark contrast to what we saw at times from her Westminster counterparts, who were sometimes chaotic in the way that they communicated sometimes very difficult decisions. Uh, and he's absolutely right. The medical and health outcomes in Scotland were not particularly different or any better than that of the rest of the UK. Now, that doesn't negate the good communications because that's an important part of leadership, particularly at a time of crisis and national uh, strife. Uh, thirdly, uh, Nicola Sturgeon did give an undertaking, a clear undertaking, a guarantee that she would uh, provide all uh, message, messages from uh, 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 social uh, networking platforms, and she hasn't done that. So she's also very open to scrutiny, and it's right that that should be criticised as well. But let's be clear. I, I think you know what we haven't seen thus far, and Andy's right, we're still scratching the surface of this whole thing, but the Scottish government weren't having parties in Butte House. Uh, they weren't uh, engaging in some of the, the language that we saw from Dominic Cummings in terms of his views of his uh, colleagues or former colleagues. It's not to that scale. But I think there's something a little bit more important that transcends a lot of this for the as far as Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP is concerned. And that's an issue of trust. I reflected last night and I was thinking about this. Uh, yes, we've had Nicola's guarantee that uh, WhatsApps would be um, uh, presented. They haven't been. We also had um, uh, an undertaking uh, back during COVID that Jason Leach uh, never deleted his emails, and that was in a, a press response to journalists. It turns out that wasn't uh, particularly true either. If we think out with COVID, we've had the Michael Matheson iPad kind of Ferrari, uh, different accounts being given as to what was uh, the iPad was used for. We had the SNP membership numbers scandal around the leadership contest. All of these things are having a uh, an impact on people's views of the SNP in terms of how and if we can trust this uh, party. So I think the biggest challenge, particularly for Hamza Youssef, because he's first minister and leader and in the box seat now, is how can you repair that uh, level of trust because it sounds like from that individual that gave the interview yesterday that that trust is starting to to waver and if you lose trust of the voters that is the biggest challenge in politics mm. yeah I mean it's really interesting the one of the defenses uh, that was put is that uh, you know the government uh, ministers and officials were following government advice and that this was the kind of standard operating procedure as it was brought in at the time I'm just not convinced Andy that that holds much water because these are people who signed up to that advice who presumably advocated that WhatsApp should be deleted and that should be the guidance. And just all of it creates this perception of real murkiness, a lack of transparency, and a real difficulty, as Jeff highlights, for voters to kind of remember back to that time and think, well, hang on a second, why, why were we being treated like this? And, and perception is everything. In this, uh, you know, I thought the <clears throat> the interview that you played is very difficult and very emotive mm. from Nicholas' point of view. Um, I, I I think the Jason Leach, Hamza Yusuf, pick up a drink and don't wear a mask thing is difficult. Again, Jeff's absolutely right. I have to say, Jeff is absolutely right. This is not, at least at the moment, there is no evidence that this is. Uh, 
uh, rule bending slash rule breaking on the scale of what was happening in Downing Street is clearly not as absolutely correct. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that the perception is definitely going in the wrong direction for them. And again, this is sometimes where technology causes problems. I said before, this is the new water cooler chat. If this had happened 30 years ago, um, these conversations would have been being had in the corridors of people who were all in the same office. And uh, so, you know, in a sense, we should be grateful that we've got uh, this more modern type of communication because it actually does in itself, just by its existence, it creates more transparency than exists, but obviously not when you delete them. There's a lot of uncertainty here in terms of how this will all go down and how uh, people will digest it in the longer term. But I think it's reasonable to say nobody's going to come out of this well. Um, I I can't see that happening for anybody involved. Uh, The anger about what happened generally with COVID, um, the scepticism about uh, whether the mitigations had to be just as extreme as they were, um, I think is growing and will continue Mm. to grow. Uh, And I think this is already simply a damage limitation exercise. Just one one final thought, um, Callum, from me on this and the politics of it all. Um, We're about to enter a US election uh, in which President Biden will no doubt call upon his predecessor, Barack Obama, to help him at the stumps in different swing states. And it got me thinking, you know, um, will Hamza be calling on Nicola Sturgeon or indeed Alex Salmond to help him at the stumps? Well, I think we know the answer to both those questions. If you told me 10 years ago um, or nine years ago, coming out of the referendum when Alex Salmond had led the the party to a majority victory in a PR system and then uh, led the yes movement to... uh, um, Yes, defeat, but no doubt uh, quite a, a, an amazing opportunity for the SNP from which uh, Nicola Sturgeon capitalised on and had unprecedented electoral success. If you were to tell me that both of those giants of Scottish politics probably wouldn't be sought after uh, to help endorse you in a campaign, I'd have told you you were speaking nonsense. Mm. An absolutely extraordinary turnaround of events. Unbelievable. Yeah. That is quite a thought, actually. Uh, your thoughts on that are very welcome, by the way. I feel like this is something you might want to have your say on. Uh, so email us, hello at hollywoodsources.com. As you listen to the evidence of the COVID inquiry and the revelations from it, how do you react to it? How do you feel about what you are learning? Uh, drop us an email and we'll read those out on our, our next episode. So email hello at hollywoodsources.com. If you don't want to hear these ads and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then you can pay $4.99 a month and you'll never hear the ads again. Just press subscribe at the top of your feed and support the podcast that way. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Holyrood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process. SSE, as Scotland's clean energy champion, can't wait to get started. As soon as the project gets the green light from government, Learn more at berwickbank.com. The podcast starts now. This is Hollywood Sources, right? Let's welcome to the podcast Sandy Begby, the Chief Executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise, uh, which represents the financial industry. Sandy, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Morning, Gallup. Morning. Great to have you here, Sandy. Um, I mean, lots of lots of things to get at. We want to talk about um, the kind of post-budget New Year 2024. Where are we at, uh, primarily with you? Um, I suppose, in terms of one thing that Andy was just saying about the kind of post-COVID uh, recovery for for Scottish business for the financial industry as well. Where 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 are we at with that? You know, he made the point that that businesses were, took a real hit during COVID because of restrictions, because of any number of other unprecedented situations. So, so where are we at in 2024 with kind of the post-COVID recovery? I mean, in terms of our own industry, um, I think that um, despite a couple of announcements recently, Sainsbury's Bank and then um, Aberdeen uh, this morning, um, some of that is a reflection of some of the challenging circumstances that uh, exist, although both of those announcements were definitely different backdrops. Um, uh, the industry in Scotland uh, overall is in, in, in fairly good health. I mean, you, you've had, over the last few years, you've had some significant investments uh, going into uh, Barclays. Uh, JP Morgan opened up their new European tech centre in Glasgow in March uh, coming up. Uh, BlackRock announced last year an almost doubling of their headcount in Edinburgh. Um, uh, Morgan Stanley, a uh, big investment. JP Morgan also in Edinburgh. Um, and um, you know Lloyd's as well. I, I continue to to add roles here in in, in Scotland. So um, you know, it, it's COVID's had a big impact on many businesses. Um, I think one thing that we've seen in Scotland is um, uh, as a result of uh, I guess changes in working patterns, hybrid working, etc. More jobs can be located in many different places. So um, uh, we've seen um, we've seen that uh, Scotland benefiting from that. And also as our strategy that we launched just towards the end of last year, our growth strategy highlighted um, globally there's a shift to financial services firms um, operating a more uh, regionalised model. So uh, again, um, as as firms look to establish regional centres uh, like Barclays, BlackRock, etc., then Scotland seems to be attracting some of that because of our human capital, cost of doing business, um, and also the strength of our wider financial and professional services ecosystem. Mm. Um, I think more broadly, the banks in particular, you know, obviously support all businesses in Scotland. And undoubtedly, there's a lot of challenges here. We, we provide commentary on a monthly basis to Scottish government and, and other parties around what we are seeing in the wider economy. And undoubtedly, it's challenging. There are some sectors that are really challenged at the moment. Yeah, I've just got a quick question for you for me, Sandy. Um, 
have to declare a conflict of interest here. But yesterday, one of the, the stories that emanated from the COVID inquiry was uh, Jason Leach, again, the clinical director, in, in conversation with uh, the health minister at the time in response to uh, some Aberdeen players breaching COVID rules. And um, and quite rightly so, they were admonished, and, um, and, uh, and that's absolutely correct. However, we got this situation where... Um, Jason Leach kind of suggested that perhaps Aberdeen Football Club should be docked points. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, why would it be for a, you know, an unelected Scottish government official to say, uh, this is what should happen to a, a Scottish professional football team? You know, that seems complete and utter nonsense. Now, I try to be sympathetic in the sense that we're all in a very difficult situation, but it kind of suggested to me that perhaps at times there was a little bit more overreach from the government into different uh, sectors and industries. And I just, I wonder your perspective. Did you ever feel that was the case with the financial services industry? And, and how might have you dealt with that in terms of uh, uh, the government's role in your industry? Quick caveat, just before I get into that, I think one is that, you know, as, as it's been called out in the COVID inquiry, no one involved ever had any experience of dealing with something on the scale. So, um, you know, making those decisions and making the speed of those decisions, there's almost a guarantee that some of those decisions are either going to be wrong or not land uh, properly. That said, I think there's no doubt there was a degree of frustration, a high degree of frustration at certain points in Mug's business um, about government overreach, particularly on things like workplace testing, uh, return to uh, office, uh, reopening offices, and also small businesses in particular, because I took part in a number of um, well, weekly meetings, actually, uh, with a number of other business groups as well, and small businesses in particular uh, were deeply frustrated with some of the, the, the degree of overreach. And of course, some of the decisions around, we all smiled at the vertical drinking example, but that caused a real angst amongst small businesses. Our own businesses tend to be larger. A lot of the frustration was around the whole uh, restrictions and rules around return to work. We were calling out the fact is that we do have employees who working from home was for a variety of reasons and just wasn't a viable proposition for many, particularly young people sitting on the edge of their bed week in, week out, um, working but through to obviously other people who suffering from mental health problems or living in abusive uh, homes, uh, etc. These issues were only going to get worse and worse and worse. And I'm not sure there was enough taking account of uh, the employer's voice in some of these decisions. Jeff used the word overreach, and I think that's a really interesting point when it comes to the economy and the the uh, bounce back from COVID. This. The, re the reaction to COVID uh, and the restrictions did quickly become politicised. I mean, I think that is that is the case. It, it was it, it was quite a politicised reaction. There was uh, the there was distinction. There was debate between Scotland and England. And I think that inevitably, this is common all over the UK. Actually, the political tendency is to deal with the problem in front of you, the emotional problem, the fact that people are acutely at risk of dying from COVID. So you deal with that problem in front of you by any means necessary. But they largely ignored the problem that's not in front of you, but that they know is coming for potentially decades to come. So you ignore the difficulties that arise from an economy that doesn't grow uh, and how people fall into mental health difficulties with that, how they fall into poverty, what then happens in terms of social security, what then happens in terms of the justice system and all the impacts that you get from uh, effectively from lockdown as opposed to from COVID. So you, you, you focus on eliminating death from COVID, 
but you forget about eliminating death from lockdown, which could go on for decades and decades to come. And I think from for the economy and for those whose key job was to try to protect the economy, that was a very difficult period because actually, in general terms, you didn't get a look in if you were trying to protect the economy or to protect education for that matter. It was all about protecting those most at risk in front of you. And I'm not denigrating that because mm-hmm. obviously saving lives is critically important. But the weighting of the lives that you save now against the lives that you potentially lose for a long, long time to come. And it is that serious. It's loss of life. It's not just shortened lives. It's potentially loss of life as a result of some of these restrictions. And I think largely speaking, not only was that ignored during COVID, I also think at the moment it's being ignored during the inquiry as well. I want to go on to uh, the budget uh, with you as well, Sandy. I think this is really important. Um, we were, well, I was listening back actually to our episode that we did on the 20th of December as the Scottish budget was announced and the kind of immediate reaction to it. And then I clocked this statement from you uh, at the time as well. Today's budget is likely to inhibit our ability to create jobs and attract and retain the talent our economy and society needs. There's a real risk of these measures being counterproductive in the short term as well as damaging in the long term. Um, I mean, I, for, this is kind of around the tax measures that were that were introduced in the, in the Scottish budget. That was what, just over a month ago. How are you feeling about it now in, 20, in 2024, in the new year? Do you stand by that? Are you, do you still have these concerns? Absolutely. And during the last few weeks, speaking to members, there is a real heightened level of risk around uh, the, the, the tax measures. We'll come on to education uh, later. The fact is, is when we launched our growth strategy back in October, we highlighted two key risks. One was followed by emergence of tax with the rest of the UK. The second one was around university funding. The budget that was announced uh, just before Christmas was very much even worse than we anticipated. We thought there might be an uh, introduction on a new level, but certainly not a higher uh, level of tax. Um, uh, I can, you know, without naming names, there are many large firms that are deeply concerned about both people uh, leaving and or restructuring their way way of living. Uh, A a number of senior people will have properties elsewhere in the UK and are taking steps to adjust their tax affairs. But I think what's really more damaging, given Scotland's own demographic challenges, is the impact on young people, uh, young professional people coming to Scotland which we we know from, again, um, engaging with our members, those conversations about trying to encourage 25 to 35-year-olds to come to Scotland to work here for a few years are increasingly difficult, if not impossible. Part of it is income tax, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that land and buildings tax means that if you move to Edinburgh or Glasgow and you're buying a flat above a certain level, then, you know, that's going to cost you substantially more. Um, Mm. So the... um, And then... Let's not forget COVID here. You may only be asked to be in the office three days a week anyway, in which case, why move? So there's a real concern around uh, particularly professional services, but also some of the larger financial services firms about our ability to attract uh, people to come and live in Scotland, even although we can talk about way of life and other opportunities. But, you know, at the end of the day, the financial differential now is significant. See, see, Sandy, one interesting thing I noticed the Scottish government response to this point that's been made about attracting talent is they're maintaining that there isn't any evidence to suggest that that is the case just now. But you're you know, suggesting from your conversations with the industry that it is a major concern. I suppose my point is here that when you 
create systemic changes in your tax system. We need proper analysis, independent analysis that looks at this over the long term. So it's, it's not good enough to look at things statically and say, this is one budget, what might the impact be? I think what we really need from the, the Scottish government, indeed the Scottish Fiscal Commission, or whoever can provide this information, is a, a trajectory analysis that looks at the long term systemic divergence in tax rates in terms of attracting future talent. Uh, you're absolutely right to point out the demographic challenges we face. And it's not just for the financial service and professional services sector. This is for all our sectors around the country. We need to attract talent and we need to attract talent now. Start of the show, we talked about uh, energy and the opportunities that are in offshore wind and hydrogen, carbon capture and storage. If we're going to get people into the country, we need to say, look, this is what you get in return for that, and that the tax regime is pretty stable and certain. And and and, and I just feel that we need that analysis, proper fronted up analysis from the Scottish government to say, okay, this is where things stand. And do you feel that's been done, Sandy, to any large extent, or do you think it has to be done? I think it has to be done. I've certainly got no visibility that it has been done. We will be engaging our membership uh, in a much more analytical way around the impact of um tax and, and hear from them. I mean, I think, you know, there's probably um, easier data points around people who potentially are, are, are leaving Scotland because that's a, that's a specific reference point. I think it's far harder to, to try and get evidence about people who are not coming here, stating the obvious, you know, it's, a, it's much, more, much more difficult. Um, and I think it's not just people coming here. I think it's people coming here who add to the tax base, Jeff. So, you know, it, it, yeah. might, it might be great to have, you know, we, we we might have a net positive inflow of people, but you know if these jobs are at the lower end of the, of the wage spectrum, then that's not going to add to the tax base. I mean, Scotland has a fundamental problem, which is we've got a million people earning £25,000 or less a year, an average salary of about 29000 And there are not many sectors in Scotland that have an average salary that is significantly higher than that. We're one of them. So the more financial services jobs we can add in Scotland that are paying above the average wage, then that's positive from a tax-based point of view. So this is, our angle has always been, how do you increase the tax base, mm. not the tax rates? Um, and I think that's the angle. I think the other thing as well is that young professional population, you know, yeah, yeah I'm not getting in a debate about, you know, free university education, prescriptions, etc. but the bottom line is if you're 25 to 35 year old, these benefits don't really mean very much. So, you're, you know, you've been at university, Fingers crossed, good health, you're not going to, prescriptions are not a factor and other things. So it, it comes down to, you know, how, what, and, and you're invariably paying off some sort of student debt. You're really focusing on, well, on your tax and, your, and your, your pay. These are some of the big drivers. Earlier on, we talked about that Aberdeen was and is a leader, a world leader in energy. And we've talked about the fact that Edinburgh was and is a world leader in professional services, financial services, and Sandy's mentioned some of the big investments over the last few years, and that's all correct. But you don't get to keep those accolades just because you want to. Um, you have to you have to show that that's what you still are. You know, to use football parlance, you're only as good as your last performance. Um, and the the truth is that we are seeing a high level smoke signal being sent up that Scotland may not be open for business in the way that it used to be. That, that's that's what we are telling the world. Don't come, if you're aspirational, don't come here. We're not for you. Mm. And I think you know we're not seeing that yet. I, let's let's not be um, let's not overplay 
I don't think we're seeing that yet in financial services. I don't think we're seeing that yet in energy. I'll tell you where we are seeing it, though, and that's housing. We're seeing it already in housing. So the rent cap is putting people off. We know this. I have spoken to many people, uh, uh, clients and clients of clients, who, you know, if they're a pension fund and they've got a build-to-rent block of flats yes. to put somewhere, why would they put it in Edinburgh? when they don't get the same return. They're going to put it in Birmingham. I mean, they don't care where it is. They just need a return mm. for their pension fund. And so what we're doing in that sector is we're, all, we're already saying to people in that sector, don't come here. This is not the place for you. Um, it may be good intentions, but uh, you know you know where the road to good intentions leads, right? And sometimes you've got to say, this, this hasn't worked and we have to reverse this. We're reducing supply in housing at the moment. We're not increasing it. We're actually reducing it and making it harder for people to rent. We need wealthy people we need to stop being so squeamish about this. We need a bigger tax base. We need wealthy people. We need high earners because they pay a lot of tax and they create a lot of jobs. And mm. that is what we need. And at the moment, there are lots of people in the Scottish government who agree with that and who privately push that. But the high-level smoke signal, I'm afraid, doesn't say that at the moment. Just one final thought for me, Callum. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when Hamza took office with um, Neil Gray, um, there was both, a, I think, a genuine attempt and a, quite a reasonably successful attempt to try and re-engage with businesses. They recognised that perhaps that level of engagement hadn't been as good as it should have been uh, up until that point. And I, and I have to say, personally, I think there's been a, a really great effort to do that. I suppose the point here is now, how does that engagement turn into action? And, and a, a major initiative was the New Deal for Business. And I, and I really would welcome Sandy's views on where is that New Deal now and what needs to be done to improve it specifically uh, if it's to have any you know, impact. I think the New Deal for Business has been, Neil Gray has absolutely led on that, put a lot of time and energy into it. And I think that early on in that process, um, we moved from the table some of the more damaging um, policy uh, issues that were affecting business. So business last March, not necessarily directly impacts our sector, but obviously things like deposit return, alcohol advertising, um, uh, et cetera, were, were clearly um, a top, top priorities and they've been removed from the table. I think that the next stage for the new deal business and is, however, is that the, the, they've stopped doing bad things to business, but there isn't really a lot of evidence to suggest that there's any policies that are doing a lot of positive things for business, which is Andy's point. The budget, the whole thing, which clearly the Scottish Retail Consortium picked up on, which is this point about introducing a further tax on large grocers and, and, and retailers, that goes completely counter to one of the old principles of the New Deal for Business, which was these things would be discussed with business in advance through that group. Uh, before being announced. We need to be honest about that. That has impacted the view of the New Deal for business and, and Scottish Retail Consortium were particularly positive about that, uh, that New Deal. And I think the whole non-domestic uh, rates and the increase in rates for many businesses in mm. in Scotland and uh, not passing on the benefit of the UK government's uh, uh, um, statement in uh, November I think it's also uh, you know landed landed badly, and there are various stats, and even in the paper today around you know the difference between having a pub in Glasgow versus a pub in Newcastle, and the type of um, uh, you know amounts of rates that uh, uh, need to be paid. So mm -hmm. to take it forward, be positive, Jeff. I think that um, they really need to now um, engage with business um, and actually take uh, specific steps 
to listen to business and take take decisions that are the ones that business want. Jeremy yeah. Hunt's likely to, to cut income tax rates again. That means there'll be greater divergence between Scotland and the rest of the UK. That politically is a very, very hot potato indeed. It's going to be really interesting um, to see how Anna Sarwar, particularly um, post-general election, deals with that. He's indicated so far he wouldn't replicate what the Scottish government's doing. Would he even be tempted to try and uh, bring income tax rates in line with that? In Scotland, I don't know, but bet your bottom dollar and they're up to 2026 holiday elections. This is going to be uh, top of the agenda, no doubt. I, I think it's a test for Labour, though. I really do. And Asarwar has dragged, much as Keir Starmer has done, has dragged Labour back to normality into the centre ground. Um, but tax differentiation is not just an issue for rich people now. Tax differentiation is an issue for middle earners, well, anybody earning over £28,000. That's right in Anna Sarwar's ballpark. So in order to exploit those people, many of whom vote SNP, he has to say, that's it, enough's enough. This is coming back down closer to parity with the UK. It's a difficult message for a leader of the Labour Party to give, by the way. Not easy for a leader of the Labour Party to say, here I am, I'm going to cut everybody's tax. That's not natural territory. But I think it's the territory that he has to be in to fully exploit his vote potential. Sandy, we've got a few minutes left with you. We're very grateful for your time. Um, I want to just touch on education. Hamza Youssef was uh, questioned by Laura Kunzberg last weekend, and uh, there was a real sort of focus on the Scottish government's record. Um, she was highlighting education uh, during the SNP's tenure. Scottish schools have slipped back in the PISA ratings quite significantly. Scottish schools in the education, Scottish kids get now behind the education that English children are getting. I think education is a really obviously, goes without saying, a really important issue. But it's one, again, that the increasing divergence is a real political issue and it has real impact on the ground as well. I just wonder if you feel like politicians are awake to this. I think that, Callum, I mean, you know, there's been a number of uh, reviews conducted recently, ranging from Ken Muir, Lee um, you know, James Withers in the post-school uh, skills um, space. So there's been a number of reviews and a number of recommendations that have been made on, on, on the back of that. I think the execution implementation of it is is particularly tough because we've got quite an ingrained, an ingrained uh, system. Like everywhere I do a lot of schools, I'd see some great examples of great teachers and great head teachers and colleges who do some great work in universities. So it, it, it's we should be quite clear that there are many examples of, of excellence uh, out there uh, as well. But I think in the moment, our education system from early years right through to college and university, maybe slightly less university because we've got some great universities on a global basis, the needs of the economy and the needs of employers are not being met through the through the education system at a macro mm. level. And, I, and that, for me, is one that we really need to, to address. The curriculum needs to change to, to be much more modern and up-to-date with what the skills of the future are going to be needed. Um, we need to get far better at career advice into, uh, into certainly into secondary schools, maybe even earlier. And we need to help young people with making informed judgments about the type of jobs that are going to be there in the future and jobs that we're going to need. You had energy earlier on, for example. I mean, the number of jobs in energy, mm. number of jobs in financial services are, are quite substantial. And we need to help young people to understand where those jobs are going to be. And the fact is that these are going to be well-paid jobs and sustainable jobs. The final thing I'd say is, as well as certainly in our sector, the number of firms, large firms, 
who the days of just simply recruiting graduates as the only way of bringing young people into firms pretty much gone. You know, they've all got apprenticeship programs, they've all got direct hire, they've still got graduate programs. But, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for firms who are now really keen to bring that talent straight in from school. There are lots of problems in schools and there are lots of specific fixes. And Sandy mentioned the curriculum, and that's one area that needs to be looked at urgently. Mm. But actually, the problem comes from a much higher level. It is a, an institutional problem, and it is a problem of ambitionlessness. That is what the Scottish education system has become. We have become not only used to mediocrity, but we have started to chase mediocrity almost by design. Uh, there is no excellence agenda, and the reason there is no excellence agenda is because the entire education system is focused around closing the attainment gap. And the gap is being closed not by lifting people at the bottom, the gap is being closed by suppressing people at the top. And that is good for precisely nobody. Now, uh, that used to be, I've had that view for a long time, ever since my first child went to school eight years ago. She's now in S2 and my other three are still in primary school. I've had that view from day one. It used to be a niche view. It's not a niche view anymore. And the only positive thing I can say about education in Scotland is that more people know about the problems now than used to. We talk a lot about the importance of the economy and we're quite right to, but education is the single most important thing that any government in any country does. Without mm. education, there is no future economy anyway. So this is number one. It should always be number one, is education in the school system. Uh, Callum, this is, I'm going to be positive on dump. This is fixable. <laughs> yeah. This just needs courage and leadership. This is fixable. People need to put aside vested interests. We need to give our young people the best opportunity in life. This is fixable. Um, mm. To Andy's point, it needs to be fixable because it is what drives the economy. But, you know, I speak to a lot of people, ranging from head teachers to, to principals, colleges, who do want to fix this. You know, mm. there are people who genuinely want this fixed. If there is a positive, I think it can be. We're a small enough country to fix it. Um, and I think we've got enough people I speak to who want it, who want it fixed. Yeah. Sandy, thank you so much. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your insight and for your own analysis and reflections as well. We said that this year we wanted to welcome in people who are not politicians, but who can direct some thought-provoking policy suggestions and things that we should all be considering in terms of making stuff better, frankly. So thanks for getting us started with that. Great to have you on. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for nice that. Strategy. Strategy.